Um, we are into a season of Lent starting this Wednesday, and I'm acutely aware every year when we talk about Ash Wednesday and we say we invite you to reflect on your mortality, um, if you're trying to be like seeker sensitive in your marketing, it's maybe not the best marketing tagline to come and reflect on the fact that you're going to die. Um, but it is the truth of the season of Lent is being reminded that we are body and soul, that we are made from the dust of the earth, and to the dust of the earth we will return, but for the resurrection of Christ Jesus. So I want to encourage you to take part in Lent in our church body. And I am also aware that we are um, not a liturgical church where typically practices these things. So for some of you, you may have memories of them, maybe from growing up in a Catholic or a high church setting, or maybe you have no context for it. I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition. I grew up, if I haven't said it while you've been here, I grew up here at this church and then went away to school and then came back and back here again. So I grew up in a Pentecostal tradition, which has given me so many wonderful ways of encountering God through his Holy Spirit, working in the gifts he's given to me, a heart for mission. Um, even singing the I Surrender All reminded me back to being, you know, a young child and seeing the older generation of the church pray and sing that song, which I think is a great transition into the season of Lent, where in Lent we are connecting into the body of the church for thousands of years as they have wrestled with their bodies, their sin, and the eternal soul inside of them. I didn't pick up practicing Lent until I was well into my late 20s, and I have found it elevate so much richly, I elevate richly my relationship of following Jesus. I'll give you some context for Lent. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. These are most likely the first words of Jesus ever recorded. Of any of the gospels, of any early church writing, is Jesus saying, come and repent for the kingdom of God is near. In the 40 days of Lent, that's what we're practicing repenting of our sins, repenting of the little kingdoms we create where we control and do what we want, and turning to the kingdom that Christ Jesus offers us. Traditionally, Lent has three purposes. For some churches, it's a season of preparation for those who will be baptized at Easter. There are churches that practice that. For others, it is an opportunity for those who have not been a part of the church, but maybe grew up, have drifted away, or their schedules have, have pulled them away from God's call as an opportunity to reconnect back into the body of believers during Lent. And then for all of us, it is a season of turning from our sin, being acutely aware of where God is working, and turning towards the kingdom. It is a season of repentance and preparation. It's 40 days because it's significant, 40 days as Jesus practiced before his ministry, 40 years that Israel practiced before they got into the land. And I'll give you a little bit of um, some calendar work because Lent is tricky when it comes to a calendar. And if you haven't practiced it before, it can be confusing. Lent is 40 days, but it's actually, it's six weeks which you practice the six weeks of Lent, and, but you don't practice the Sundays of Lent. They're not considered part of it. They are a Sabbath from Lent. So you end up with about 36 days. And then where does the other four come from? Somewhere in the Middle Ages, somebody said, let's add Ash Wednesday as the Wednesday before Lent of these weeks of practicing it, uh, these seven periods of six. We'll add four days to the beginning, taking 36 and making it 40. 
So it begins on a Wednesday, it ends on a Saturday, it's 40 days, and it goes through seven Sundays. Is that confusing enough for everybody? But in it is a set period of time where we say as followers of Jesus, I am preparing my heart, I am preparing my body, I am preparing my soul to celebrate the greatest moment of all creation, the moment where God took on my sin and death and conquered it through the cross and resurrection. As a church, we practice Lent in several ways. One is starting this Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, there will be a Wednesday prayer service every Wednesday of Lent leading up to Easter. It'll be one hour right here. We will also practice a 24-hour water-only fast that will begin Wednesday night at 6 and end Tuesday night at 6 and end Wednesday night at 6. And it's fasting from food, drinking water only during that period of time, And then also, we will send out to you, starting the week following, a devotional podcast, a special one you can listen to on our stream, as well as a written devotional you will receive emailed, and then through our social media, read and given to you by our staff and our elders throughout the season of Lent. Holy Week itself, we will give you a devotional every single day of Holy Week so that you can be refocusing and centering your heart on Christ. If that sounds like a lot, there will be an email that explains all of this, as well as on PenningtonAG.church. You can follow along with all of the details. It starts excitingly this Wednesday. Okay, deep breath. Back into our series, Following Jesus. I was reflecting on this new part of the series. We're going to be talking for three weeks on what it means to follow Jesus in our character, in our life. Talked about the Bible, we talked about prayer. We'll spend three weeks on now how does this impact the life that I live, the way I work, interact with family, what I do with my time. And we're gonna talk about time, body, and money. Today we'll talk about time, probably the least controversial of the three. As we talk about time, though, we will ask this question for each of these Am I using my time to glorify myself and to love myself? Or am I using my time to glorify Christ and to love his people? That's the heart of the question. When I was uh, first lead pastor, I was interim lead pastor before I was uh, full lead pastor, I guess is what you would call it. And I was 27 years old and I was much younger than I am now. And I was very eager and I'd be preaching, open your scriptures, let's go. And I was very young. I also ran an insane schedule for the first year or so of my interim lead pastor. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm grateful that the board saw God's plan of where this church could go and what he was doing in me. Um, But I ran nutso. Particularly one day, I can recall back, it got the worst it ever got. I had gotten up early and I started preparing my sermon at seven before I even came into the office. I was reviewing and I was going over. I listened to several podcasts while I was walking into the office, got started, was reviewing the larger area of where we were going in a series. And so I'm looking at a few books in order to see and inform the series. I was also working on that week's sermon. I had several meetings throughout the day. I had a lunch meeting, I had a coffee meeting, and then I had a dinner meeting at 6.30. I was going between all of them meeting to meeting, studying in between, talking with staff in between. And as I was driving to my dinner meeting, I was still thinking about the previous meetings. I had emails that I was also thinking about, and I had my phone in my hand. I apologize. And in it, I was thinking about the emails. I was responding. And in that moment, not paying attention, I slammed into the back of another car. And right on 31, right in front of Pennington Market, 
I totaled my car because my car was worth like $5 and it was very easy to total it. Uh, and I sat on a curb as a very kind older woman lectured me and asked if I wanted her husband to come and arrive. And I said, no, ma'am, I think we can handle this. And the police officer together, you don't need to intimidate me by your large husband. I trust you that he's big. Um, but in that moment, took care of that, knew that I'd have to get rid of my car. But I distinctly remember the feeling of sitting there after rear-ending somebody because the chaos of the schedule I was living in, I still in my head was even numbed from the conviction of what I was doing wrong because I was still thinking about my schedule. And I was like, all right, now I have to let this person know. I'm not gonna be able to make this. And now I have to adjust. Oh, now I'm gonna have to tell my insurance on all of this. And I have to make a plan to a new car. I still was planning and thinking and not even living in the moment of owning up to the chaos of what I had done. As we talk about the pace of Jesus, when we talk about time, I want you to know that a sermon today about time is not a sermon telling you you're wasting your time, what are you doing with your time, you have to work harder in your life, and the famous sermons for teenagers of like, you're going to graduate and you got to make the most of it, a John Piper sermon about not retiring and wasting your life away, but this is going to be a sermon for the next 20 minutes on the restful, loving embrace of the pace and schedule and time of Jesus. This is a focus on the kingdom of God, love-affirming, important use of time, eliminate time-wasting, draining activities, and know that God holds the world up in his right hand, not you, and rest in the freedom and joy that that brings. Jesus in the Gospels, one of the overriding things about his character when you read scripture is that Jesus was never in a rush challenge you. Find me a part where Jesus is rushing or anxious or frantic, moving around. He is constantly moving at the exact pace he knows he should be in. Others sometimes even give him a hard time. Why aren't you rushing more? Why, don't you, why aren't you more anxious about this? He moves at such a non-anxious, patient pace. Jesus wasn't fr frantic. Jesus prioritized relationships. And Scripture has given us a spiritual discipline to help us model Jesus' life and pace, the pattern of Sabbath. Let's read an important story from Mark chapter 2 about Jesus and his practice of Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, I'll be reading in the New Living Translation, verses 23 through 28. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during those days when Abiathar was high priest, and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people not people to meet the requirement of Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. The portion less focused in this passage is it gives us a little snapshot into what Jesus did during his rest times, what Jesus did on his Sabbath. 
you don't know, Sabbath is the Jewish practice from the Old Testament of 24 hours of rest, not doing any work at all. From sundown Friday to sundown Saturday is when they practice it. The church, because of the significance of the resurrection on a Sunday, moved Sunday traditionally as the day of Sabbath. That's why it's on Sunday. But Jesus is practicing Sabbath. And what's he doing? He's on a restful walk with his friends, just popping heads of grain in their mouth, snacking, walking out in nature, hanging out with his buddies. This Jesus pattern of Sabbath. He spends Sabbath oftentimes in creation, enjoying God's creation. He often or always spends creation, I mean Sabbath, eating, enjoying food, and spending it in relationships. And the Pharisees, for some reason, are there. Think about how odd that is. It's the Sabbath. They're taking a fun walk and just, you know, eating, snacking as they're walking. And the Pharisees are there? What are they, like, hiding in the field? And they, like, pop up and they're like, gotcha! What were they even doing there? Actually, I would say, if I was there with Jesus, hey, is it your job regulating people and saying if they're following the rules or not and keeping hold on whether they're following the instructions? And isn't today the Sabbath? And aren't you regulating a rule about Sabbath? You're working, my friend. You're working today. You're doing the stuff you always do. What do you say to that, guys? And I think this is a lesson about when, as followers of Jesus, we can realize we've made our journey more about religion than the journey of following Jesus. I think if you can realize you are now criticizing the particular way someone else rests, maybe we've lost sight of the focus, that they're critiquing the way Jesus rests on the Sabbath. How often do we have opinions and thoughts about what other people do that's right or wrong on the day's when they are resting. There are so many types of nonsensical situations we get in when we are not prioritizing Jesus and his love of people. They don't like that on the Sabbath, Jesus is resting so freely. Like all good rest, there's supposed to be rules and regulations on how to rest. Good rest involves detailed instructions, and good rest involves high expectations, and good rest involves a lot of work. Sort of like, I'm resting. It's not how Christ calls it. Just relax your grip. Enjoy the time I've given you. He responds by telling them an Old Testament story about David and God's law. He says, David was in a great moment of need. Him and his followers were in need and so they broke a ritualistic law in order to care for themselves and be fed. He's saying, don't you think that God cares more about the care and love of his people than he does about the particularities of the regulations he's given? And what Jesus is saying is, God the Father created rules and regulations in order to care for his people, not creating his people to maintain the rules and regulations. They exist for our benefit. They exist for our joy. They exist for our blessing. They are not rules made to control and to add burdens. He didn't make this world, these bodies, these minds and hearts to serve them. He made them so we would enjoy them. The Sabbath 
is made to meet the needs of the people. The Sabbath was made to meet the human need to stop and to rest. We have a human need to stop from what we're doing and rest. Some of you may have grown up with blue laws, if you're old enough here in the room, where in your county or your city, there would be laws. You couldn't do things on the Sabbath. You couldn't, the bowling alley would be closed or the movie theater would be closed. The liquor store would be closed. Sometimes the grocery store may be closed or have regulated smaller hours because you're not supposed to work or do things on the Sabbath. But more likely, most of us have grown up in a tradition where Sabbath rest is what we would consider an optional spiritual discipline. It's a a nice one if I can fit it in. It's a really cool idea to be able to have a whole 24 hours to rest if my life allows that, in particular seasons when that may be possible. We think of it as an optional part of our life. While we can recognize my opening story of my own chaos and schedule and activity, I would also think that there are probably some of you in the room that even as I told that story, you were thinking not that I had gotten consumed with being too active, but your thought was probably I wasn't organized enough, right? Like, oh, the problem wasn't schedule. The problem was your organization of the schedule and you needed to delegate more. And if you had arranged it better and it wouldn't have fallen apart, you wouldn't hit that car if you just had better control over it. Rather than recognizing when our pace grows to a level where God says you gotta stop it and reset it. And I'll tell you, at that period of my life, and I remember being 27 and a young minister, it was one of the most consistent compliments I got from church members was, I love that you work so hard. I love that you're really working hard. I love that I can find you at the church at late hours of the night, that you're there working on wires in the production booth or you're painting a wall down in the kids' room. I love that you're at every hospital, every home, making phone calls, all of these coffees. I love that you're doing all of that, Pastor. I think it's the indication of one of our Western American ideals planted onto the journey of following Jesus. That to follow Jesus, yes, he wants our best from us. And yes, he wants us to live with integrity and efficiency. But that the highest honor and character is not working hard, is not filling our schedules, is not leaving everything on the floor until we're exhausted and drained. To think about some of the greatest sports icons of the last 30 years that we think about, and I'm not gonna name names, are people who were phenomenal and left it all on the floor and then had wrecked, destroyed lives at home. Is that what we want? Is that what Christ wants for us? To leave it all in the office and come home a husk of a person. To leave it all at school and be exhausted with all-nighters and have a falling apart relationship life. If we are not careful, We may become the ones to see Jesus' life and say, like the Pharisees say, he lives like a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus didn't work hard enough. He was at too many parties, eating too much food, drinking too much wine, relaxing too much. Jesus didn't do enough. If he just had a better schedule and a better app, and integrated organizational tools. He could then have done all of these things. Jesus would have said, I'm good with what I have. 
We can read scripture, and if you've been a Christian long enough, you've probably had this conversation at some point. Why is he so hard on Mary in the story of Mary and Martha? And why is he so hard on Martha? She's just trying to make the party good. Somebody's got to clean the dishes. Mary's just sitting there at his feet. Why is he so hard on Martha? Or you read the story of Jesus calming the storm and the seas, and you say, you know, I kind of agree with the disciples. Why is he sleeping down on the bottom of the boat while the ship's about to sink? Or you read the story of Lazarus, John 11, and they come to Jesus, our brother who you love is dying. And Jesus says, let's hang out here for two more days. You read those, Jesus, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you not more in a hurry, in a rush? Why don't you see the priority of this? Jesus was never in a hurry or frantic because Jesus enjoyed the life and the purpose God gave him. Now, Jesus has the advantage of living perfectly in line with God's spirit and God's will. So he knew the right thing in every situation. But we also have that same spirit. We also have that same Jesus walking ahead of us. This series is about following Jesus. And if you want to know God's will and purpose for your life, we begin where we've begun over the last five weeks with living in the story of Scripture and seeing the pattern of Jesus' life and what God has said to us about his priorities. We sit in silence and listen for the voice of God to guide us and instruct us on where we are to prioritize and what we are to do. And oftentimes, I will tell you, he won't tell you you're not doing enough. He will tell you you're doing too much, and to trust in his pace and his presence. I'll tell you, as a pastor, in 2020, 2023, this whole last decade, we are longing for significance, and we are settling for busyness. I've had this conversation a dozen times. Pastor, I just want to do something that matters. I just want to do something important. I want to do something great, significant, have a church that's great, significant, do something that other people might talk about or might remember. And we get overwhelmed with it because there's 8 billion people and we're connected to them all the time. And there's so many problems out there that we could focus on, so many things to be angry about and argue about and be overwhelmed by that we search for significance. And when we realize we can't reach it, we settle for just being busy. I would feel better if I'm just doing a lot. Or honestly, for many of us, if I just continue to keep myself numbed by entertainment, I won't realize I'm longing for this significance that I can't reach. I'll just numb it away. I'll binge it away. There are forces with intentions on our lives that if we are not intentional, they will have an intentional plan for how we should live. If you are not having a plan, someone else has a plan for your life, I guarantee you that they are forming you into a box and a shape of how you are supposed to live. There are algorithms that do this intentionally and unintentionally. And many of us are overwhelmed and drifting and hoping that things will change. God has a plan for your time and your life. And his plan is not just that you will be a missionary and go to a foreign land. It's not just that you'll be called to be a pastor and do ministry in a church. He has a plan that you will live a full, present life, present with his spirit 
present with the people around you he's given you to love, and present with creation, its groanings and its joys. We often use our time to bring ourselves glory, to bring ourselves loving enjoyment, rather than to use our time to bring glory to Christ and to love and enjoy his people. When we talk about Sabbath, it is easy to think of it as a spiritual discipline. But I think the better understanding in Scripture is that it is a creational pattern of life. It's not something we choose to do. It is what we are made to live as. It is how the world is created. It has a pattern of work and rest, of productivity and then enjoyment. This is a pattern creation has followed for thousands, millions of years. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 speak of this. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested. And God blessed the seventh day and he declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. The day when he rested was not just different, it was holy. It was separated and significant and sacred to rest. Sabbath reminds us that creation has a pace to it, and it helps us submit into the pace of creation. Sabbath reminds us that we are not saviors, and that if I take a break from my productivity, the world won't fall apart. My needy friends will be there tomorrow. My boss's alerts and pings will be there tomorrow. The projects I have listed around the house will be there tomorrow. They don't need me. I get to do this. And finally, Sabbath allows us to enjoy creation, to enjoy what God has placed around us. A few instructions on Sabbath. These aren't scripture. These are merely wisdom I have learned and gleaned from others throughout the days. Sabbath is not a day to binge. That's not what it is. I used to practice it that way. I'd be like, all right, Sabbath day. It's a day where I am opening up a box of Elio's like I was five again, and I'm making waffles at home, and I'm putting cherries on them, but I like cherry pie filling, and I know it's gross to some. It's my Sabbath. That's what I'm doing. For lunch, I'm going with a pizza. I'm just following my gut here. I'm eating maybe most of it, but I won't tell people that. And then I'm just going to binge the rest of the day. I'm going to watch a whole show all the way through one whole season. I have a planned out what I'm doing. Monday was normally my Sabbath. I would take it then. Sabbath is not a day to binge. Sabbath is a day to be acutely aware. All of these activities I just described are activities of disconnection, activities that disconnect me from myself, from the people around me, from God's voice in my life. They are literal distractions and numbing devices, whereas Sabbath is about being aware. It means you can do good things. I like on Sabbath to have a great meal, to have great coffee, maybe too much coffee on a Sabbath day, to enjoy a great meal with my wife, to not have our phones out while we're enjoying it. I like to get out in nature if I can on a Sabbath, take a walk, take a hike, play a sport, do something with other people that I enjoy. And I have a rule for myself that when I am Sabbathing, if I'm listening to a podcast, it is a podcast that feeds my soul. 
If I'm doing activities on another day, I can listen to entertaining ones. But on those days, it's something that's feeding me, teaching me the Bible, teaching me about Christ, teaching me to pray. I feed myself on those days things that are healthy and lead me to Christ and lovingly engage with my creation. But how do we do this? What does it look like? How do I practice a discipline of Sabbath and rest, well, it's also a discipline. What does that look like? As we practice something like Sabbath, resting in Jesus pays. I'm gonna tell you, it requires discipline, it does. It's easy to criticize those who run big schedules, and a sermon like this can feel like that. The protective, I mean, the, the productive, driven person, not just a sermon for them. My personality is a uh, B-type Enneagram 7. I love flying from my gut and working with improv and creation and being fun and, pro and art. Um, so for me, I'm not someone with a schedule normally. And I used to say, hey, I don't struggle with this. I just fly with where God's given me. Until someone told me, no, you're living in chaos. And you're just hoping God gets you through every moment of every day. You have to take control of your life in order to release control to Jesus. And if you don't even know the schedule of your life, the moments of your days, where they go, why they go there, it's impossible to hand it over to him. And if you don't have control over it, someone else does. Jesus describes it to us like this in John 15. This is our final passage. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. One of my intentions every year, as I start the year, is to try to be more aware of the presence of God in my life. Just that simple. It can take on different things each year. It could be more scripture reading. It could be more time in quiet. It could be more intentional relationships in my life. It could be more generosity that I'm practicing, but to be more aware of God's presence in my life. To take our time and to use it to be more present with Christ. I will promise you, if you try to start doing this, you will feel the tension and the pull of the world moving against you. You're wasting your time. You gotta be more productive. Can you imagine what you could do as a life hack of all of this and you get your side hustle going on this day and you could be way more productive of here. But to say, no, I'm moving counterculturally in how I use my time. And I am trusting that if I take a day of the week, if I take an hour each day, if I take a weekend each month, if I take a week each year at minimum, and I say, I am using these moments to enjoy God's creation and be aware of his presence in the relationships he's given me, that I can experience his presence. Jesus uses the analogy here of a vine. He says, if you're following me, if you want to live like I live, you can think of it like this. I am a vine. I'm a living 
thing. I'm a, I'm a person that's producing, that's, that's bringing life into the world. And you are a vine that has been grafted onto me. You are a branch growing out of me. And how do vines grow and take shape? We build them a little trellis, a little crosshatch of wood to grow up in the trellis. The church for 1,500 years have called this the rule of life. Choosing how we will live our life. Choosing the kind of people we will be. What we will do with our time. What we will do with our resources. What we will do in the modern age, our rules with our technology, our smartphones, the rules of how we will engage with them so we can choose to control the people we choose to be. The ideal Christian life would be to sit with Jesus' presence all the time, to be thinking about him, to always know what Jesus would do if he was me, have compassion for the hurting, living honest and vulnerably, being full of joy at his presence, being self-controlled. But then the voices in our heads and the forces of this world pull against us. John Mark Comer says in his really significant and prophetic work a few years ago, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, if a vine doesn't have a trellis, it will die. If your life with Jesus doesn't have some kind of structure to facilitate health and growth, it will wither away. For Kate and I, 2020 was a reset chaos year where we had to say to ourselves like, all right, none of the patterns of how we lived our life are the same anymore. I don't get up and I go to the office anymore. I'm in my home all the time. I don't see people in the same way I did. The internet is now every present thing around me. It's omnipresent in my life. We need to create some rules of how we are not going to lose it in this time. Rules about where our phones go. At the time, we started having our phones charged in a different room when we went to bed. We just had a book or a Kindle with no internet access to read a book while we laid in bed together. We made a rule about praying and cooking our meals several times a week, being present with each other. We made rules around when we would read scripture and how we would pray. We did it out of necessity then, like Israel. We got into back into regular rhythm again. It's so easy to throw it back out the window. And I will tell you, some of you in this room would say to me, hey, I tried praying. It just didn't really work. I tried it. I didn't really hear from him. It doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. I tried reading scripture. I had a Bible reading plan. I kind of got off of it and I, I couldn't get back on it. Our spiritual life, our following Jesus is just like anything else in life because God created all of it and created these rules as to how we live as human beings. You need a plan of how to follow Jesus. You need to take control of your life to hand it over to Jesus to say, this is how I will be with my phone. My phone is not my master anymore. I don't just look every week and be like, oh, my usage is up 12% again. I, we will take control of what we read. Take control of how we value other people. Take control of our time. Seven tips as we close for building a rule of life. And on your way out of service this morning, we have in the lobby, as we did throughout this series, a sheet on following a rule of life. 
has some instructions on what fasting is like and Sabbath is like, has a sheet in the back to give you space to create your own rule of life, to pray and seek the Holy Spirit of what my life should look like right now. And as you do this, as you make commitments, start small. Mine is, I always try to start like seven things at once. I'm like, I'm gonna start journaling and I'm gonna read 50 books this year and I'm gonna pray for an hour and a half every day and I just set way too many goals. Start small, be specific. This is what I'm doing. This is when I'm doing it. This is why. Consider your personality and give yourself grace. Know that you're not the same as another person. You're a different person than they are. Consider your season of life and your stage of discipleship. You may not be the person who's in their 60s and followed Jesus for 40 years and can pray for two hours a day. That might not be you. That's okay. Start where you are. You may have young children right now. You may have three kids under the age of five, and it may be hard to move and have this much time. That's okay. Consider your stage of life. Keep a healthy balance of easy and difficult practices. Keep a healthy practice balance of structure and spontaneity. And remember, this is a working document. Build it, grow, seek God's direction. Talk to other people in a small group. What are you doing? What does your life look like? How have you taken control of your time? How do you rest and make space? As we do this, and as we seek Jesus, if you have felt overwhelmed by your schedule, if you have felt overwhelmed by the pace of life, I want to just close with this benediction scripture for you. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. If you'll join me in prayer. I want to give a chance this morning. If you're here and you can't confidently say you're a follower of Jesus, I want to give you a chance just to pray one prayer, take a first step of following Jesus. For the rest of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, use this as a moment of recommittal into that relationship. Pray with me. Jesus, in this moment, I recognize my pace of life. And my pace of life without you feels oftentimes like I'm out of control. Jesus, I need to surrender my control to you so that I can live under your authority with your gentle and light burden. Jesus, I believe that you lived on this earth as God and man in one flesh. You lived a perfect life, lovingly, graciously, generously to the people you have made. And then you took our sin, our burden, our brokenness onto yourself on a cross. You died in our place so that on the third day you could rise from the grave, conquer death, and give us all the promise of eternal life and the fullness of life now by your spirit. Jesus, you gave your life for me. Today, I commit my life to follow you. I pray this in your name.
Amen. If you stand with me, if you can, all over the room, we want to close out in one final song and to open up the altar space here. As we practice the pace of Jesus, as we practice giving him our time and following his call for our time, I want to just challenge as we close out service to not let your mind begin to wander, to think about what's next in your schedule or the crockpot's already on or Olive Garden's there. Take a moment and just say, Jesus, in this moment of space and time, will you just remind me of your presence? Remind me of your goodness. I'll invite our elders up here on the left and the right. If you would want us to pray for you, we will gladly pray for you and pray that you would receive the presence of God. I like to think of the altar as a physical demonstration of a spiritual work. I'm just taking a step out of my chair. I'm taking a step forward in the room into the presence of God and saying, God, meet me here in this space, in this room. I trust you are here. I will make myself here. We can also all over the room engage as the team leads us in one final song, invite the presence of God to be here with us in this moment.